everybody, and welcome back to Exploring the Lord of the Rings. This is session number 258, and tonight we are going to move a step closer to getting off the mountain. In fact, uh, we're only like five slides from the end of the chapter. In fact, we are starting to get perilously close to the end of the Ringo South. Um, so that's pretty exciting. Uh, before we start, because I have lots of questions about elves tonight. Um, yeah, do all five tonight, praise? Yeah, that's likely. Um, before we get started, I just wanted to... Uh, I've, been, uh, I've been immersed for uh, 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 a significant percentage of the last 24 hours uh, in uh, writing the third chapter of my book, or sort of uh, finishing, uh, finishing up the draft of my third chapter of my book, um, which will be dropping the end of next week. Um, uh, really excited about this. So I'm now I'm now finished writing. Well, I still need to do some revision of it, I think. So I'm not 100% finished with it. Um, but um, I'm getting comments now from uh, folks in my author circle. Um, and as well as, you know, like my editor. So there's that too. Um, but um, anyway, it's, it was, I mean, it's so much fun. So I'm just about done with uh, writing on the prologue. Uh, my third chapter on the prologue. So what this uh, third chapter is about is uh, it's the um, the fourth section. Uh, so in other words, the recap of The Hobbit. And I think I have always been guilty of a kind of skimming over that section. Because, um, you know, it's plot summary, right? You know, you get to that section and it's kind of tempting perhaps to be like, yeah, I, I, I've read The Hobbit, like I've been briefed. And even if you know that when... Tolkien originally started, that is like, you know, when, when, when The Lord of the Rings was being published, the revision to The Hobbit was still relatively new so that he could expect that many people who were reading The Lord of the Rings for the first time in the mid-50s might not know about the new Chapter 5 uh, that had uh, appeared in the second edition and so might be very confused at some of the things that were said about what happened uh, in Chapter 5. But... Um, <clears throat> anyway, it's um. Uh, so as I said, I've often kind of skimmed it. So really sitting down with the description of the Hobbit, man, it was fascinating. Um, it is so cool, like how he selects what he focuses on in that um, uh, in that recounting of the Hobbit story, how he slants it. There is so much like editorial side comment and things. Um, and it just became clearer and clearer the more I was looking at that. What a very careful and intriguing um, uh, piece that is. Uh, so, and, you know, it, it was, uh, anyway, it was a whole lot of fun to do. Uh, and I, f I found it took me to some places I did not really expect to go. So, um, uh, so this third chapter on the prologue uh, will be, as I said, be coming out next week. Um, and... Um, yeah, uh, Scott, it is a good prologue from a guy who told us not to read pro prologues. Yeah. But again, I think one thing is pretty clear is that he's hedging his bets, right? <clears throat> he wrote a prologue, which is intended for two audiences. It's intended both for new readers who haven't read the book yet and who need the, you know, who want the prologue to prepare them for the story they're going to read. And he also wrote it for people who are coming back and reading the prologue after they've read the whole story and it works for both readers though it works in different ways and that was one of the things i was kind of exploring um 
I was kind of exploring there as well. So anyway, really, really, um, <clears throat> um, really fascinating stuff. Uh, had such a great time with that, looking at uh, Bilbo and Gollum and the way the ring is presented, what is said and what isn't said uh, about the um, uh, about the about the ring in the prologue. So really cool stuff. Anyway, so that's my head is still full of my third chapter uh, there. Um, many thanks to my author circle through the Signum University Press, who's been, I, I just had a meeting with them. We were just talking about it. Um, and uh, uh, that was great fun. So to those who are subscribed uh, <clears throat> to my, uh, to the book in progress, um, I, uh, as I say, that, that'll drop the end of next week. You know, it's just it's, it's something I've been reflect been reflecting on is just how glad I am for the the whole subscription process. Um, writing, exploring the Lord of the Rings, it's a lot, right? It's a lot. Um, it's not quite as much as this broadcast is, but even with you know being a little bit more focused than this broadcast is, it's still a lot. Um, and if I write successfully a chapter a month. Uh, from here on out, um, I'm, it's still going to take me probably 18 years, uh, to finish the book. So the, this is, um, I mean, and I'm going to be pouring a big portion of my, you know, adult life into this book, into these books, the six volumes of Exploring the Lord of the Rings that I'm planning. Um, <clears throat> and, um, anyway, I'm, uh, it's, I mean, it's, it's going to be a while, um, but being able to have folks like with me along the way, um, I don't know that I could do it. I mean, I think of the 17 year process that Tolkien took writing the Lord of the Rings. Right. And obviously he had support then he had, um, uh, the Inglings and, uh, you know, he had Lewis and he had especially Christopher, um, during that time, you know, people who were reading it and, and interested in supporting him. Um, but, uh, I'm, I'm just, I'm really grateful for the way that we are doing the serial release and being able to have, I don't, it would not be the same to me. I know I would not be able to maintain the same kind of reading schedule if I didn't know that there were people along with me, uh, on that particular trip, because really, um, it is delightful, not just to be able to sort of share the completed book along the way, um, but to, um, uh, you know, but to be sort of sharing the entire experience, uh, of discovery as we go through. So, um, it has been such great fun. Uh, if you are interested in subscribing to get the chapters as they come out every, uh, every, and they're fairly <laughs> meaty, um, the, uh, chapter I just wrote, a uh, little under 7,000 words. So, um, it's, it's, uh, they're substantial. These are not like, uh, I'm, I'm not just, uh, handing out a, you know, a couple pages, uh, every month or something. Um, but, um, anyway, yeah. So it's, um, uh, if you're interested in subscribing, the subscription is, you can go to press.signumuniversity.org. You can go to blackberry.signumuniversity.org. Um, and, um, uh, you can go click on the press stuff there and you can find there how to subscribe to, um, uh, to my book. You could join my author circle. Um, 
and uh, be part of the sort of the the core support team uh, that I'm working with through this process. Um, uh, so anyway, that is um, uh, it's going to be it's going to be awful. It's going to be a lot of fun. It has been fun already, and um, I just can't wait for this continued process. Of course, you know the books are you know the different volumes of the book are going to be you know officially published as standalone books. Uh, you know. Uh, along the way it's not like you have to wait for 18 years to read any of it um but um it's been uh, um it is going to be it is going to be uh it is going to be an awful lot of fun it's gonna be an awful lot of fun jj is what i'm saying anyway all right um <laughs> sapphira says please don't tell us that one of your children is going to have to edit your notes uh no no i don't think either of my children is going to be excited about the prospect of having to edit my notes uh, Sapphira, no, I think um, um, we'll be fine. We'll be fine. I'm not worried. I'm not. I'm less than a hundred percent sure. I don't know. I still think I got a decent chance of making it to the Grey Havens uh, on Tuesday nights, but um, uh, but I'm m even more confident that we're going to get through the books. So. Um, and yeah, Nancy says, just imagine how much fun it'll be once we get to where this class actually started. It's true. It's true. I'm actually really looking forward to that. Even, uh, you know, after this, now I'm finished with the prologue. I'm shifting to chapter one um, and uh, going through. I've got three chapters on chapter one planned and partially drafted. Um, so I'm going to be going through and, and putting those chapters in order. And then we get towards chapter two. And that's when that's when, you know, things start to get real as far as uh, as far as this class was concerned. All right. One last very quick announcement. Don't forget that our next moot is coming up soon. We're a week and a half away from text moot down in San Antonio. Um, the theme of text moot uh, is language and specifically invented languages. Um, and it is going to be fantastic. I am so excited. This is a really cool theme. And I was just looking. We, we're going to be publishing the schedule uh, for that really soon presentations are so cool we're going to be just doing so much we're going to be doing some like uh we're, we're going to be learning tengwar we're going to be uh hearing presentations about uh different invented languages we're going to be doing some conlanging ourselves it's going to be really really fun uh so i am i am so excited um for uh text moot this year heading down to san antonio never been to san antonio before as i uh as Texmoot has me continuing my tour of Texas, uh, which is uh, w which is really cool. Right, both Scott and Sphinx are pointing out that technically all languages are invented, which is which is which is certainly very true. Um, but um, anyhow, I am uh, I am I am uh, I am very excited to go down to San Antonio, and as I say, that's going to be on Tax Day, uh, uh, April fifteenth. Uh, that is Saturday after this one, and um, and of course since it's tax day, uh, we actually do have somebody giving a presentation on Aragorn's tax policy. So George R. R. Martin would be very happy. Um, yeah, yeah, cool, um, excellent. Ah, be honest, honor. Uh, looking forward to your presentation at TaxMoot. It's going to be great fun. Okay, very good. Then let us get back to the text and try to figure out what exactly um, Legolas is on about. Okay. We looked at the beginning of this passage last time. Let's read the rest of it. Aragorn was the tallest of the company, but Boromir, little less in height, was broader and heavier in build. 
He led the way, and Aragorn followed him. Slowly they moved off, and were soon toiling heavily. In places the snow was breast high, and often Boromir seemed to be swimming or burrowing with his great arms rather than walking. Legolas watched them for a while with a smile upon his lips, and then he turned to the others. The strongest must seek a way, say you? But I say, let a plowman plow, but choose an otter for swimming, and for running light over grass and leaf, or over snow, an elf. With that, he sprang forth nimbly, and then Frodo noticed, as if for the first time, though he had long known it, that the elf had no boots, but wore only light shoes, as he always did, and his feet made little imprint in the snow. Farewell, he said to Gandalf. I go to find the sun. Then swift as a runner over firm sand, he shot away, and quickly overtaking the toiling men, with a wave of his hand he passed them, and sped into the distance, and vanished round the rocky turn. All right. Um... <laughs> Okay, I, um, I've always felt this was a very strange passage. Um, <laughs> Arden Crown says, and that was the last I ever saw of Legolas. Okay, um, so it was the first paragraph we talked about last time, and we were left at the end with uh, Boromir, the, the, the sort of, image of Boromir who seemed to be swimming or burrowing with his great arms rather than walking, right? So we see um, Boromir totally bogged down in the snow, which is in places breast high, um, but we see him, uh, you know, working hard and leading the way, and we talked about his leadership and his humility and all the wonderful stuff to be observed about Boromir and him and Aragorn together, you know, let us, let us, uh, you know, let us forge a path there, you and I. Um, okay. Then we get Legolas. Now, the first, and I think sort of simplest thing on the Legolas question here is um, the way he um, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the the sassiness, as uh, several people are saying in the uh, in the chat here. Yes, and of course, he sasses both Boromir, who is I can't even I don't um, I don't think Boromir can hear him, right? And then of course Gandalf. Um. So, all right, before though we even get to his dialogue, let's just confront the simple fact. I can't understand how this is possible, right? And it's odd because Tolkien usually asks that kind of question. Um... There aren't that many places in the Lord of the Rings where one just kind of shrugs and says, well, I, I guess it's magic, right? I guess it must be magic of some kind. Um, how is it that he can walk on top of the snow? Um, his feet 
made little imprint in the snow. Um, by the way, the um, uh, the way in which this, uh, on the one hand, I genuinely admire Peter Jackson and company for preserving this element, right? I mean, like, they followed the text, at least as far as walking on snow is concerned. Um, and boy, did it look weird in the film. You know, they're all struggling through the snow and leaning against the wind, and there's Legolas just, like, strolling along on top of the snow. Of course, still having to lean into the wind because it's during the storm uh, that they show it happening. It's it's not this situation, right? Um, but, um, okay. Um, all right. So, Dolores Stroke, you joke, but this is exactly what I'm talking about. Um, Dolores Stroke says, presumably there's a chapter in the nature of Middle-earth about elf feet-to-weight area calculations. That's exactly the problem. This kind of thing, Tolkien often cares about. You know, like, it's unusual for Tolkien to just kind of wave his hands and be like, oh yeah, you know, laws of physics, whatever. There are times, and there will be other times, when I think we may perhaps perceive the limits of Tolkien's own scientific understanding, right? Um, I don't really think he fully understands. I don't know. But anyway, um, yes, Belongsmond, I do believe Tolkien would be aware of stories of monks levitating. Um, that's kind of a Catholic thing, levitation, I mean. Um, there were a bunch of Catholic saints that levitated. Um, it's kind of a thing they do. Not all of them, but, you know, it's, uh, it's, it's, it's a known phenomenon. Um, uh, but, um, uh, no, no, not, that's not what's happening here. Um, notice, Legolas is not being depicted as doing any magic here. He's not being depicted as doing any magic here. He just, he habitually wears no boots, but only light shoes. Because he doesn't need boots. Think about that. What does that mean? Legolas needs no boots. Why wouldn't he need boots? Does he walk on mud as well? Right? Like he doesn't, he doesn't sink into the snow. He doesn't sink into the mud. He can just walk across all of it. Right? I mean, um, <laughs> Legolas has no boots. Legolas needs no boots. That's exactly it. Um, yeah, I mean, uh, right, exactly. If he, now he says, for running light over grass and leaf or over snow. So he claims to be able to run with equal lightness over grass and leaf. Now, I, I, I can't think that it is completely true um, that... Uh, like I, I don't like when they're going through deep grass in Rohan, like I don't think he's running like two, three feet higher up than everybody else, like running along the top of the grass in Rohan or something. So there are clearly some 
some kind of limits here. The biggest problem that I have, the problem that I have here is I don't know how to think about this. This is why I struggle with this. I've always struggled with this passage. I mean, as soon as I grew old and wary enough not to just be like, hey, that's cool. Legos can run on top of the snow. Um, like, it, basically, as soon as I began to perceive that this passage seemed to me quite... Um, uh, out of keeping with the way Tolkien is inviting us to read and respond to his work in almost every other case. Like, this passage really stands out. And it stands out in just the way as <laughs> we need a reenactment. Yeah, we could try it, I suppose. Um, but, um, uh, uh, I don't know. I don't know how I am supposed to be responding to this. I don't know where my head is supposed to be. Let me explain what I mean by that. Am I supposed to be thinking about the laws of physics? So, to put it in the simplest possible way, though Goadriel would be uncomfortable, um, is this magic or is it not magic? Now, I know. The whole point is that's a... Uh, not the best question to ask, as Galadriel would tell us, right? Um, but right, <laughs> evil Dr. Cannon, the physicist, says that one should always think about the laws of physics. That's exactly my problem. Well, well, but is it a wonder? That's my question. Wobe says it's a wonder. Is it? That's what I don't understand. Is it a wonder? I mean, it's a wonder to the hobbits. It's presented to us from the Hobbit perspective as a wonder. And notice the way that it hits Frodo. Right? Frodo now only realizes at this moment a thing that he's observed all along. And that is that Legolas needs no boots and wore only light shoes, as he always did. He'd noticed that before. He'd long known it. Legolas doesn't wear boots. But he'd never noticed what it meant. He'd never thought about what it meant. That Legolas needed no boots. His feet don't get cold. His feet don't get wet. You know, so he can walk on top of the... Can he walk on top of water? I don't think all elves can just routinely walk across the top of water. Um, I, that certainly does not seem to be true. I mean, for instance... We have direct evidence that multiple elves drown in the sea. For instance, the elves that Turgon sends to Valinor who don't make it. Like, the set of elves sent by Turgon to, towards Valinor minus Veronwe, right? All seem to have drowned. Amroth, exactly. You'd think if Amroth could walk on the water, he would have hopped out of the boat and just sprinted back across, right? Um, so, yeah. Absolutely. Um, and I agree, praise the kinslaying would seem to be <laughs> an even larger overreaction than it was if they could just hike across the ocean. Atherim wouldn't need the rope to cross over the river. Now again, whatever, you could, you could maybe um, uh, try to find ways to argue some of those things. Um, but uh, 
But in any case, like I, I, I cannot think. And what's more, there's yeah. No, I, I just. So I'm gonna assume they sink in water. What then? Like so, then why doesn't he have boots? What happens when it rains? Does his do his feet not get wet when it rains? Um, does he just not care? Which is possible, like that his feet just don't get cold because enormous resistance to extremes of temperature uh, compared with humans. So Legos is just not bothered by the cold. Uh, to you know, he doesn't need to protect his toes, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So. <laughs> right. I, I, I like that. Um, uh, Arnold was saying, uh, I think this is the only reference to Elvish footwear in the, in the whole legendarium, which seems very possible. It seems very possible. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, Let me go back a second. Woe to the comment that you made before about it's being a wonder. Again, Frodo's response to it. Wonder strikes him in this moment. As he now realizes, as if for the first time, though he had long known it, that Legolas had no boots. Notice how his elfiness is emphasized. Right. Um, sorry, technical vocabulary. Um, but notice how it doesn't use his name, that the elf had no boots, right? That is, he could have just named him there. He, you know, he hasn't used the name since the beginning of the previous paragraph, so it's not like it would be, like, super repetitive for him to repeat the name. Instead, he calls him the elf had no boots, which potentially implies that in Frodo's mind, at least, he is linking this not to some idiosyncrasy of Legolas, right? I mean, I had a friend in college who never wore shoes, um, except when there was actually snow on the ground, and not even always then. Um, and uh, that was an idiosyncrasy of hers, right? She just did not like to wear shoes. And even when she did have to wear shoes outside, she took them off as soon as she came inside. Um, I... That was an idiosyncrasy of hers. The implication, I think, here is that this is not just an idiosyncrasy of Legolas's. This is an idiosyncrasy uh, of elves. This is this is has to do with elfness in any case. Um, but um, yes, Bjorning says the purpose of this bit of narrative is to emphasize the elfiness of Legolas relative to the other members of the Fellowship. Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and um, of course, this has just been emphasized again in the previous paragraph. Um, you know, for running light over grass and leaf or over snow, an elf, right? This is Elves are the ones that you should choose for the job. We'll come back to what Legolas says there in a second. Um, uh, anyway, well, back to your comment about it's being a wonder. Frodo 
receives it in this moment like a wonder. Though one of the things that he marvels at is that he never really noticed or never really paid attention to the fact that he'd seen this before, that he should have um, he should have always noticed and been thinking about this. And his feet made little imprint in the snow. That is, that seems to be true like even now, as they're standing there in the camp. Um, so I... Um, the implication seems to be, which, by the way, I, I, I think, which the Peter Jackson crew was picking up on, right, that this just seems to be like a stable thing. I, I, I don't get any impression. Do you get the impression that Legolas has done something here? Has triggered something? Is applying his will in some special way at this moment? That he would have been sinking into the snow five minutes ago? But now he's like, okay, I'm, um, uh, you know, I'm going to trigger my snow thing right now. No, I, I, I don't see any cue which suggests to me clearly that he's like turning on his snow walking capability in this moment, right? However however that works. Um, yeah, I agree. It seems to be that it seems to be just a um, uh, a stable elf thing. Um, and Dr. Benway, that's a good point as well. I also don't think there, I don't see any reason to believe that this is a specific Legolas trait. No. No, I, I can't. again, he doesn't, um, he had the opportunity in his speech to mention that, right? If, theoretically, Legolas had a special talent, right? Um, you know, uh, he had spent several years developing an immunity to gravity. Um, he would have said so in his speech. The strongest must seek a way, say you. I mean, um, which one is the most appropriate one of us to handle this situation? The strongest, says Boromir. And we talked about the context of that saying. So had he turned and said, um, the strongest must seek a way, say you, I say, look to the one who can defy the law of gravity if you need somebody to run over snow. Um, uh, yeah. So, um, I, um, really don't, don't know. Um, I really don't know. So, uh, but again, so I, I, no, instead he's, he talks about elves in general for running light over grass or leaf or over snow, choose an elf, he says, right? Um, not this elf, right? He's not like, fortunately you happen to have the anti-gravity elf with you right now, like, it's an elf thing. It is as general to elves as swimming is to otters. And that is presumably uh, very general. Um, so, okay. Yeah. All right. So it's not special to Legolas. It's, I don't think, something he suddenly turns on. Again, that seems to me to be the import uh, of... Frodo's noticing as if for the first time, though he had long known it, right? 
what is kind of registering for Frodo in that moment is that this has always been true of Legolas, right? Um, he's not just saying, hey, if I take my boots off, I could just run over the snow, right? He never had boots in the first place because Legolas doesn't need boots. Um, and Frodo never realized it. But Legolas has never needed boots, and Frodo is only just now figuring it out. Um, so, okay, okay. Um, yeah, I am. Um, all right, still struggling. Well, back to it being a wonder. There is a sense, of course, in which this is not being presented as a wonder at all, but rather a characteristic of elves. It is as natural to an elf as swimming is to an otter. The um, strange little... Um, the strange little saying that he makes up, right, gives three things. One, let a plowman plow, but choose an otter for swimming, and for running light over grass and leaf or over snow, an elf. So, plowman, otter, elf. Okay. Now, notice the way that those three are structured let a plowman plow, but choose an otter for swimming. Okay, so if if you need a furrow plowed, you should get a plowman for that. Right? I guess. No, that isn't what he says. He doesn't say, if you need something plowed, get a plowman. He says, let a plowman plow. What does a plowman do? Well, a plowman can plow. That's the one thing we know. It's possible that different plowmen might have multiple talents, but um, the one thing we know, presumably, about any plowman is that he's able to plow. So um, let a plowman plow. That is, uh, like you indulge a plowman by letting them plow. Um, had he gone on to choose a different creature, right? Um, the, f the first problem that I have, uh, Vardendale, thank you. It's good to know I'm not the only one who's thinking of Langland, um, in this line. Uh, Pierce Plowman, that is the poem by William Langland. Um, <laughs> Maureen says, let a plowman plow and let otters ought. <laughs> I like that. Okay, okay, hang on, hang on. Okay, no, here's my problem. <laughs> that plowing and swimming, it's like a non sequitur. I don't, I don't fully, I'm not following Legolas's thought here. Um, had he said something like, let a plowman plow, but choose a mole for digging. Okay. I'm with you, Legolas, right? I get it. If he had said, let a plowman plow, but choose uh, but choose a mole for digging, I would have thought that what that meant was a human who is accustomed to a particular labor may be competent, and it's okay to let them do their thing, right? Um, but if you really need digging done, 
you you really want somebody who's native to it, right? Um, you want serious digging done, get a get a mole or some other burrowing creature, right? Um, that seems to be the general suggestion of how he is talking there about the otter and swimming, but choose an otter for swimming. Okay. So hang on a second. Um, do you think it has to do with the description in the previous paragraph about how Boromir seemed to be swimming? Right? Um, is what he's saying not plowmen are okay at plowing but other but like a, an animal a digging animal would be even better at plowing than the plowman no he's saying let a plowman plow but this isn't even a plowing situation right you're if Bormir is a plowman and I don't know why why he is like I don't understand where that comes from um uh but in any case uh, yeah, Gilgalade, he does seem to be kind of mocking Boromir for swimming through the snow, right? Um, it looks like you're swimming, actually. It doesn't look like you're digging at all. There's supposed to be... So the only thing that I can see that it has to do with plowing... And by the way, timeout, footnote. Um, I know that many of us might be thinking about snow plows and might think that it's relevant there, but I don't... If anyone could look it up, like how long the like I don't even know that snowplow would be in Tolkien's vocabulary. Um certainly not associated with plowmen necessarily. But anyway. Um I, I think that's I think the connection between plowing and snow they did used to plow snow with horses, that's true. I don't know. I don't know. Um, and trains. Okay. All right. Well, let's roll with it then. So, Boromir is a plowman. Um, he's a plowman because he's plowing the snow. Okay. He's a plowman because he's plowing the snow. 1862 is the first pl plowman or snowplow. Okay. All right. Boromir's a plowman because he's plowing the snow. And so Legos is saying, go ahead. Right. If you're a plowman, you can plow. And I think he's, I think it's a pun. Right. A plowman is not, that's not about snow plowing. That's about plowing a furrow. Right. Oh. Goodness, Legolas, this is so complicated. It's so confusing. All right. The snow's like three, four feet thick, right? So on the one hand, Boromir is the snowplow. His body is the snowplow. He also is like a plowman because what's he leaving behind him, right? What he's leaving behind him is a furrow in the snow. I mean, that's what it's going to look like going to look like a single furrow. He's not obviously plowing a whole like road or whatever. Um, uh, okay. So you've got... So he's a snowplow. 
the first kind of joke that Legolas makes is a, the plow and plow pun, right? He's a snowplow, which makes him a plowman. He's a snowplow, and he's a man. That makes him a plowman who is plowing a furrow. And look at the furrow that he's plowing, right? You keep at it, Mr. Plowman. Plow, plowman, plow, right? Uh, but choose an otter for swimming. It's, I think he's teasing him by the fact that he looks like he's swimming or burrowing with his great arms rather than walking, right? But, like, if, if you're going to swim, you really want an otter for that, right? An otter would be quicker. Cuter, too, probably. Um, and otters certainly do swim much faster than plowmen plow. Okay. All right. Um, and... Then, the third element, and for running light over grass and leaf or over snow, an elf. So I think the otter swimming um, yeah. Um, good grief. Okay. Um, he is he as an elf is as well suited for running light over snow as an otter is for swimming <laughs> he, he is as much him running over snow is as much like an otter swimming as it is unlike Boromir plowing right um yeah Okay. Um, let's just say I don't think that Legolas's little uh, aphorism here is going to make quotable quotes anytime soon. But okay, I'm sorting it out. But now let's go back. Um, for running light, if he had just said for running light over snow, an elf, it that also would make more sense. Um, he brings up grasses, grass and leaves, however, running light over grass and leaf. And yet, praise, I've been thinking about Luthien and her feet as light as linden leaves. Um, but that's a compliment to a dancer, right? Um, it doesn't actually claim the poem that is doesn't actually claim that she doesn't you know like make an imprint in anything um okay um um <laughs> let otters ought might catch on though belongs bond i agree okay um yeah that's that's uh that's better um okay Running light over grass and leaf or over snow. So he brings up grass and leaf because he knows that's what people are going to associate with elves, right? Um, I mean, if he says, choose an otter for swimming and for running light over snow, an elf. People would be like, what? I, okay, I guess, right? I mean, there's not a stable association between elves and snow, 
outside of the Helcaraxa, but again, that's not very Lord of the Rings relevant. Um, uh, yeah, okay. Um, so instead, he begins with the things that elves are associated with, and that is running light over grass and leaf. All right. And that does seem praise. I mean, I'm coming back to the feet as light as linden leaves, right? Um, it is true light-footedness is associated with Luthien. We've gotten that in a poem, right, in this book so far. Um, so we do have... Um, uh, we do have some association with light-footedness, though, again... Nothing in that leads us to believe that this is, uh, um, yeah. So, Asanol Bazaar is wondering if there's a kind of etymological joke here. Um, that is one definition of the word swimming is basically meaning to float. As an Obazar, you can you can still see the word swim being used in that way. Of course, the word swim um, usually, in one sense, means that, right? That is, usually when people are swimming, uh, it means they are consistently succeeding in keeping themselves on the top of the water and not sinking, right? Um, uh, but more importantly, you can see, like, the word swim is the opposite of the word sink in more archaic English. Um, this is why, for instance, if you are familiar with the King James Bible, uh, you may well remember the miracle through which it was a Elisha the prophet, wasn't it, who made the iron swim? Um, it's a unusual and minor miracle performed uh, uh, by one of the Jewish prophets when somebody lost an axe head in the water and he causes the axe, the iron axe head to float to the surface. Um, and uh, the, um, the King James says, and the iron did swim, meaning it floated up to the surface of the water. Um, so that is um, certainly uh, a sort of standard definition of swim in that way. Um, and otters do. Are, they are good at floating. That is true. And so if, is, if by using the word swimming, he is also envisioning that like skimming across the surface thing. It's certainly what he's going to go on and do, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, it's only, it's, um, only uh, helping me to a limited extent, however. Okay. I still have my same problem, which is I don't know how I'm supposed to be reading this passage. I don't know what I'm... Am I being receptive to a wonder? Is this a... Is this magic being performed? Or am I to understand this in... Is this an example of 
an elf doing magic, or is this an example of elves being different? Um, I know elf magic is elves being different, Abelard, but um, yeah. But do you see the distinction that I'm making? So, like, for, let me give another example. Eventually, later on in the Fellowship, um, in Book Two, here, Legolas is going to explain about elf dreams. He's going to tell us about how elves sleep or how they don't sleep. Right. Um, that's an example of elves being different. Right? They're not... I mean, it's it's just like they function differently from humans. Other examples would be um, rapid healing abilities as evidenced by, for instance, Beleg, when he is uh, beaten with an inch of his life and then nurses his own wounds and gets right back in the hunt very quickly um, after uh, Turin is captured in the Children of Hurin. Um, Emily, I'm going to leave Legolas's vision for now. That's a different question. Um... Is this just a way that elves are? Is it supposed to be wondrous? Is this a kind of thing, again, to go back to the Galadriel vocab, to remember ahead to the Galadriel vocabulary, is this something that even the hobbits would call magic? Even if it's just because they don't understand it? Um... Um, yeah, yeah. Um, is Sam seeing, would Sam consider that he is seeing a bit of elf magic here? I think no, right? I mean, I, I don't think. I mean, when Sam says that he's always wanted to see a bit of elf magic like, he hear, like you hear of in the old tales, right? Um, he doesn't add, and I haven't seen any since Legolas did that snow thing, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, Yeah. So, do I think that Sam has... Sam would consider that he is seeing magic here? I don't. So this is why... So we'll come back to it. This is why I'm not sure that we can confidently class this as a wonder. I don't think the hobbits themselves would deem this to be a wonder. Um... Is 
In which case, how is Tolkien expecting us to receive this? Possibilities. Possibility number one. Tolkien does not realize exactly how light-footed you would have to be to accomplish this. That is, the part of this passage that is bothering me uh, is derived from Tolkien's own scientific ignorance. That's possibility number one. Possibility number two. Um, elves have the ability to suspend disbelief. Yeah, of course it depends on how crusty the snow is. I can walk on snow if it's crusty enough, um, but it would not be when fresh fallen in this kind of circumstance. Um, and yeah, yeah. Would it bother me more if Legolas was doing this with no special note made, Aranos? That's a great question. It's a great question. We do get all of this fanfare. Um, Legolas's elfiness is extravagant attention is drawn to Legolas's elfiness before he steps out onto the snow, right? Um, yeah, yeah. Um, another possibility. So possibility number one, Tolkien doesn't understand. Or misunderstands. Number two, Tolkien does understand that this is normally against the rules, but is asking us to invest secondary belief in the idea that some of these rules just don't apply to elves in the same way. Rules such as gravity, right? Or like relative density of matter. Uh, number three, Option number three is Tolkien is asking us to imagine him into, like, number three would be something along the lines of there's a perfectly rational explanation for this. Right. Um, yeah. I think... So that, that's what I mean when I'm saying I don't know how I'm supposed to respond to this. I don't know if I'm supposed to respond as if I'm seeing magic or a miracle. Or I don't know if I'm supposed to respond uh, by saying, okay, Tolkien, but snow doesn't work that way. But this seems too... I, I... Surely... Surely it can't be option one. It can't just be due to Tolkien's ignorance. He would have had enough experience with snow by this time in his life to know that he... Um, that you would 
have to weigh like, I don't know what, 10 pounds or something uh, to not sink into the snow, unless you had enormously huge feet, um, which, again, there is no indication uh, that he does. Um, yeah, Bormir's Horn says, I think we're supposed to think, oh, elves can do that. Yeah, I, apparently. Um, now, he doesn't assume it, right? Um, uh, he doesn't assume it because um, we get this big introduction, right? We get this, this whole big deal is made of it. So, um, Aranas, as you were suggesting, he doesn't just, like, you know, toss out a reference to Legolas running across the top of the snow like it's nothing and nobody even notices and we're not supposed to think anything of it. Clearly, we are supposed to recognize this is a big deal. And I have to think, um, I have to think that he's, um, yeah, well, look, Legos can be as lithe as he wants to. He's not going to be able to run along the top of four foot powder, uh, leaving little imprint in the snow, um, howsoever lithe he in fact may be. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so it does seem to be part of the nature of elves for them to be able to do this. Um, no. Um, Necro-VMX, no. Um, Karathos is not still dumping snow down. The snow has stopped. Um, yeah. No, it's not just that his prints are being covered. Um, no. He is, in fact, asking us I mean, we can't get away from the fact that he is asking us to believe that Legolas can run on top of four feet of powder, leaving almost no footprints in that snow. Um, like, of that fact, I think we have to be perfectly clear. Either there's no escaping. There's no escaping that. Um, and notice that he runs swift as a runner over firm sand. It's interesting that he does say it's over firm sand. It's not like it's over rock or something, right? Um, I don't know quite how to um, reconcile the two statements, frankly, that his feet make, make a little imprint and that he's like somebody running over sand. Um, your feet distinctly do make imprints in firm sand, right? It will hold you up and you can run over it. Um, but, um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I, I don't get how both of those things can be true. Swift as a runner over firm sand. Right, like a racetrack. Yeah. Um, It's true that little imprint does mean some imprint. Yes, but... And maybe it's just little imprint in the snow compared to sinking all the way through, you know, you know, to your knees or thighs in the snow or whatever. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Even if we accept that that's not a contradiction, which I'm fine with, um, Okay, so elves can just do this. I mean, the only way that I can understand this passage... Let me, I, I mean, I don't know, perhaps you're confused as to why I'm so confused about this passage. Um, it doesn't make sense. Like, there's no... There's no purpose to it. Like, it has no payoff. It's... And this is unusual. Tolkien doesn't normally just out of nowhere be like, oh, and by the way, elves can also, you know, I don't know what, like, do a, some random and apparently impossible thing. Um, it, it's weird. It's weird for him just to throw out, like, a... Uh, a completely extraneous marvel like this. Um, and it is very unusual. Like, I absolutely agree. At the end of the day, there is nothing we can do with this passage but just, like, accept it and move on. I'm not arguing that that ultimately is where we're going to have to be. The reason I'm spending so much time on it is, apart from the fact that it's what I do, um, the reason I'm spending so much time on it is that this is an extremely unusual... Tolkien doesn't normally do this. This does not fit his normal patterns. Um, very rarely does he ever just say, just expect us to roll with things in this way. Um, Now, you're right, um, Barnendil, that so far everything about Legolas has been weird. He was having conversations with rocks before. You're right. You're right. Um, he is a strange elf, Jackie. He is a strange elf. The strange elf, right? Um, and maybe... Maybe we should be careful. Well, certainly we should be careful. Here's the thing that strikes me. Um, remember, Tolkien has just quite recently shifted genres. He's not been at this very long. Writing books like this. I mean, this kind of storytelling. Um, his Silmarillion stuff isn't anything like this. The Hobbit isn't anything like this. Right? Children of Horn isn't anything like this. Um, the Adventures of Tom Bombadil is a little bit like this, but not that much like this. What I mean is this whole world-building thing. I know it sounds counterintuitive, 
But I think it's perfectly fair to say that when he's writing this part of this book, he's still quite new to this whole world building thing. Right. Um, yeah. Now, Boromir's Horn, I actually, to me, it's a no brainer, which is stranger talking to rocks or um, walking on snow. That's easy. Walking on snow is way weirder. It's a different kind of weird entirely, right? In order to talk to rocks, all you have to believe, like to accept him talking to rocks, you have to accept only a small, like you have to accept A, that there is some kind of spirit in the rocks that perceives and remembers things. Um, and given what we've seen already, uh, very believable, right? That does not seem a big stress. It seems very consistent with the world that we've seen. Uh, and two, that Legolas can in some way perceive them or communicate with them. Then which nothing could be more likely, right? Um, so I don't, that like talking to rocks and hearing them respond uh, doesn't, it's not even in the same category of weird, right? Um, uh but the idea that he can just run over the top of snow asks us to believe a totally different kind of thing. That elves' relationship with the world, with the laws of physics, by which I mean the world and how the world functions. Um, the laws of physics would not really be Tolkien's vocabulary. That's not, I think, how he would normally say that thing or talk about that thing. Um, that they are related to the world in a different way. Okay, but in almost no other ways are elves related. Is the relationship between elves and the world manifested in such a way that makes it look like they're not... They have a fundamentally different relationship with the laws of physics. Um... Yeah, Bjarne Sonner says this is an alteration of our world, not an addition to it. Yes, yes, agreed, agreed. Um, um, yeah, and that's what makes it harder to understand. But here's the thing that's occurring to me when I was talking about Tolkien being new to this. This is going to sound even stranger. But bear with me for a second. There is a sense in which this is the first story about elves that Tolkien's ever written. Right. Now, now saying it that way is just being inflammatory and I'm, I'm trolling you now. Um, but, but do you see what I mean? Tolkien has written this kind of story. Um, where he's doing world building, where he's focusing on this kind of internal consistency, where he's asking and answering the kinds of questions that he is asking and answering of this, where he is providing to his readers the depth of secondary world and the extent of secondary belief that the Lord of the Rings offers. The Silmarillion was never that. It was myth-making. It was never offering us that kind of experience. We don't know how things looked and sounded on the ground. We didn't see them interacting with things like this. 
right? Um, the Hobbit. The Hobbit is a fairy tale. It's not a story like this. There are all kinds of questions of this kind that we're not encouraged to ask, and it doesn't seem weird not to ask them in The Hobbit. Um, like, for instance, exactly... Let's take... I saw a couple people. Um, I saw a couple people... Uh, Talking about the drunkenness of the elves in the in the Hobbit, the perfect example. If you're reading the Hobbit, and you're asking yourself, either a exactly how much wine did those elves drink, or what exactly is the proof of that wine, like what precisely is the ethanol content of that stuff, right? If you're asking either one of those questions, I think you're missing the but you're you're not reading you're not entering into that story um, in the way that it invites you to, right? Um, those aren't relevant questions to the kind of narrative that the Hobbit is, right? But if a similar incident were to occur in the Lord of the Rings, it would be a perfect. Um, uh, it would it would be a perfect, a perfectly fair question to answer. The Lord of the Rings is the kind of story that is, in fact, interested in those questions. And you can see throughout his draftings, Tolkien is doing more and more things like, you know, making maps and working out who's where on which day and how long is it going to take them to get from here to here. And, like, he is really working out the realities of these stories on the ground. Right, he is inviting us to invest that kind of secondary belief in these stories. It's just a fundamentally different kind of imaginative investment in a story than he was asking in any story really he's ever written before. And in this context, that is, in the context of this new kind of story, where he's working out all of those details, right? And he's thinking it all through in those kinds of very practical ways. Legolas is the first elf character that he's ever had. Because this story, he's only been doing this since he started, not even since he started. He's only been doing this since about halfway through chapter three, uh, right, of the Fellowship of the Ring. Um, has he been writing this kind of narrative, right? Um and although they encountered elves, they encountered Gildor, right, and the other elves, but, um, and they were very other, but they weren't sort of a, you know, they were a, they were a holiday, right? Um, Legolas is the first elf who is a part of that tale, right? A part of this kind of story, who is part of the story of for which it is appropriate for us to ask these kinds of questions. Um, so, um, and remember, Frodo's moment that he has here, noticing for the first time, though he had long known it, Frodo is giving himself as an illustration of this like uh, this phenomenon which we as readers are having at the same moment too oh yeah there's been an elf along all the way through I wonder what that means on the ground right like what does that look like when it's at home um, 
what is it like to actually travel with an elf and have an elf as a, a daily companion? Um, how different are they? In what ways are they different? Um, not just like, you know, their temperaments or their personalities or whatever like that, but I mean, they're... Elves are weird, right? Elves are different. Elves are other, capital O, right? Um, so what does that look like? And it seems that... Again, those are the only two times we've had any significant interaction with Legolas has been first, the Talking Rocks, and now. Both times we have heard or seen from Legolas something which sets his life experience, his body itself, apart from those of the rest of them. Right, even I mean, the dwarf is not in a different category in the same way that the elves are. In, that the elf singular in this case is in a different category. It seems, therefore, perhaps, um, that Frodo. No, it seems perhaps that Tolkien is just working out exactly how different elves should be on the ground. These are the questions. These kinds of details um, are not... Again, these are not the kinds of questions that one is prompted to ask in the Silmarillion material, for instance. Um, yeah, well, great example. Um the elf circles in The Hobbit, right? Um, it's a different kind of story, right? You are Thorin or Bilbo who sees the elves feasting in Mirkwood and you step into the elf ring and the instant you step into the elf ring, the lights all vanish and everything goes away, right? Like the people are gone, the food is whisked away and we're not... Um, you know, we're not told how, why, you know, any of that happens. Um, but that's okay, right? Again, if your response to that in The Hobbit is, okay, um, you know, do they have, like, you know, drills for this? Like, does everybody have a particular, like, dish that they're supposed to pick up? Do they have a little map that shows where they meet up for the next elf ring? Um you know, in the, like, how do they make it happen, right? What are the mechanics of the movable feast there in Mirkwood? Um, when, again, if you're asking that kind of question um, in Chapter 9 of The Hobbit, you're asking the wrong question. That's just, that's not how we're supposed to be thinking about that. Um, we're never offered any answer, and it doesn't seem like... But here, we're in a different world. And... I feel that, I don't know, it's not that I think that Tolkien is wanting and expecting me to ask, how exactly does his weight not make him sink down into the snow? I think the answer is, he's an elf. How does an otter swim? Who taught the otter to swim? Right? Um, I get it. I get it. But, but it doesn't work for me. 
it breaks me out of that world that Tolkien has been so meticulously building. I don't see how this is germane to elfiness, right? Um, I, I get the light-footed thing with Luthien's dancing, but um, uh, but I don't see how, you know, where this contributes. So this feels to me... Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I do think, Bjorning, that the literary mode that he has adopted in The Lord of the Rings insists upon consistency. Um, this is a... Consistency is something Tolkien is delighted to provide in many other situations. Um... But um, but here, he simply doesn't provide it. He just violates that consistency and asks us merely to understand in some utterly unspecified way that it's an elf thing. Um, yeah, Wobe comes back to saying it's a wonder. But it isn't the kind of wonder. It is not consistent with the kinds of wonder he's going to show us. If we made a list simply of elf wonders, of things that are wondrous about the elves as we meet them and interact with them, I think that this would still stand out like a sore thumb. Um... I just think it would. Let's see. Let us see if we... One of two things. One. Is Tolkien ever going to circle back and make this fit better than it seems to fit now? Or two. Does Tolkien ever provide us again with an elvish wonder uh, that feels as disruptive to secondary belief as this one does. And yeah, Dr. Benway, it's a big part of the problem. It's a physical wonder, not a spiritual wonder. Yes. Yes. Um, yeah. Um, yeah, so... Um, we will see. We will see how that develops. I think this is still... Um, I mean, if I'm being honest, I think that this passage is a blemish that Tolkien kept in because it was fun. Or possibly because his kids thought it was fun and he didn't want to cut it out. Um, remember... Remember how long Odo survives uh, because Christopher liked him. Um, yeah, yeah. I know, Josh. I know. I know. I'm doing crit fic here. Um, 
this still feels like an anomaly to me. Almost, uh, you know, almost unique. I can think of very, very few other passages like it in The Lord of the Rings. Very few places in which Tolkien plays so fast and loose with the physical world um, that he has here. Um, and I think it needs I think it needs explanation. Um, yeah. And I absolutely agree much more than in the Silmarillion it happens all the time. Exactly. But it's not weird there. It fits what he's doing there. You can tell a story in which you're like, and they carried the flower of the moon, but they dropped it halfway to the chariot, and so it got bruised on one side, and this is why there are dark spot, dark splotches on the moon to this day, right? You can tell that story, and I'm not going to be sit here, be sitting here and saying, but wait a second, you know, how, like, if the sun was a fruit that you could carry in your hand, how could it possibly be? Like, I, it's fine. It's fine. Like, Silmarillion, not asking those questions. Um, yeah. Um, yeah. No, I, I stand by the word blemish, Bjorning. I, I think it is a blemish. I really do. Um, I really do. I'm not saying I think this whole passage, like, must be cut. I'm saying I think the walking on snow thing is a blemish. However, I do want to return. I know that as I'm trying to wrestle with, not just wrestling with understanding this moment, understanding this particular wonder, Wob, to use your word, um, uh, but, but, but even to, like try to think through more clearly how to discuss it consistently and clearly. Um, I know that we've given short shrift to Legolas's um, sassiness, as you say. Um, yeah. Let's talk about how Legolas, what we learn about Legolas's personality here, because we learn more about Legolas's personality in this scene than we have ever, you know, from we, when we first met him on forward. Um, so let's talk about that. We'll, we'll start with that next time and then we'll move on to the next slide. I promise we'll move on to the next slide next time, but it's getting super late. Um, so thanks everybody for joining me this week. We will, uh, return next week for more of sat more of sassy legolas and then um uh back on to um uh when boromir says what might be delivers what might be his sassiest line in all of the lord of the rings uh so we'll see um anyway uh field trip time for those of you who could join me for the field trip and for those of you who are here just for book study thanks for joining us and have a good evening Good evening. Good evening, Valoria. How are you? Doing all right. Yeah, this really does seem like sort of a, an impossible Tolkien koan to ponder enlightenment with, you know? It's 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 deeply strange. I really 
Uh, I was like, when I first read that, I just thought it was the coolest thing ever. I I did too. I did too. When I was a kid, I loved this passage. I thought it was, I thought it was awesome. But it's exactly that kind of, um, it's exactly that kind of like, uh, I don't know what, I mean, I liked it because I was being (laughs) uncritical, basically. Yeah, maybe we just need to open that part of our brains again, or well, which I can see, right? But it's just again, it's still, it's just very unlike Tolkien. It it does seem like something he would make fun of Lewis Carroll for, right? You know, right. like like I could see Lewis Carroll writing something about the you know the 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 nice red dwarves being able to walk along the snow as if it was land or something, and Tolkien going, "That's ridiculous," right. Why would they be able to do that? But you know, here here he is doing it herself. C.S. Lewis, you mean? Yes, yes. Yes, yes, C.S. Lewis. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it sounds like something he'd. Yeah, it's like he'd make fun of it for being too twee. Yeah, or again, like not holding together in ways that Tolkien loved for things to hold together. Yeah. And what a time for Pippin to not say anything. Like, isn't he the king of awkward questions? Like, where is his? Why is he walking on the snow, Gandalf? Like, come right. on, man. Right. For our sake. Right. All right. And okay, we so are we're heading back to Seerland here. Seerland. And now we get to, we push into a long field trip tonight because we're starting super late. But, um, yeah. the, uh, now we can, I can, we can, I can, I don't have to pretend I'm not looking around anymore. <laughs> okay, so let's. We can take the blinders off you. We can take take time exactly. So we're starting, we're starting. So this is a huge city which we ran all through. Um. All right. So let's just let's just. I don't even know if we're going to have to walk anywhere. Let's just go go with what we can see from here. That, yeah. Because we're not going to even have time to get like try to get the lay of the land and figure out the shape of things. Oh. But let's man. just start see. off by identifying where and when we are, right? Yeah. So we've got that huge Cardolan Tower over there, right? Yeah, with a big freeze on the side. Yeah, so the the ring of Cardolingian, uh, you know, tower uh, freezes yep. around the top that of that same. fat tower over there. Same um, tower. Right, okay. So clearly... That was second epoch, height of Cardolan stuff right there. And we can see it again down over the doorway, the, the bricked up doorway down yeah. over there. Yeah, and um, you can see they're very much mimicking old Arnorian style too. They are. But it's interesting that you should say mimicking because look at the difference between those friezes and the rest of the ruins, right? Yeah. I think... I mean, they look so much sharper and newer. I think almost, that yeah. this was a first epoch city, um, epoch city, which I see. was then adopted by the Cardo engines and built up on. Oh, the freezes are new. Yeah, they do look yeah. newer. You could almost see like the, the stars look red, like they'd been painted or shellacked a color that's fading off. Right. That's interesting. That's interesting. Yeah, so... Just, just garish as Greek stuff, apparently. Whoa, and I fell. 
Okay. Yeah, I think um uh I think that like these columns mm-hmm. are clearly older. Not just the fact that some of them are broken and worn down, but the um the extent to which they're worn and the like look at their stars on those too. Mm-hmm. But they don't look anything like the stars no, on those friezes up there. Yeah. No. So I think the differential suggests that this was built during the time of old Arnor. And it makes a certain amount of sense. Um, because the breaking up of Arnor into the three kingdoms, um, I don't believe that that was meant to convey... And when they split up, they expanded, right? Like as if Arthedain was all of Arnor and the people who split out into Rudaur and Cardolan were like, we're going to go somewhere else and settle new lands outside of Arnor, right? I think it was a fragmentation of the existing empire. In mm-hmm. other words, this area then, you know, what was the heart of old Cardolan, um, is, I'm looking at the map here now, this city is right smack in the middle of that. Mm-hmm. Um, it's right smack in the middle of that. And it would make a certain amount of sense that this city, that this would, that this would have been a city back in the day. And quite an idyllic Arnor one. Was, yeah, it was still, was still a kingdom. What? It's quite an idyllic one too. Even like in this amount of ruin, it's kind of pretty. It's very pretty. Yes. Yeah. And just again, looking around what we see, I mean, this, uh, this lovely pool, which I don't think to be just a flooded courtyard. I, I suspect this to have always been meant for a pool mm-hmm. down there with a nice colonnade yeah. around it. Um, and then the, um, I like to think that the, uh, you don't know, see the, uh, the tower off to the Southeast here with, or the, 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 the square building off to the Southeast with the, um, the cartilagin uh, uh, freeze above the bricked-up door and the the, mm-hmm. um, the column sticking up. I like to think that was the bathhouse, right? Oh yeah, this very much looks like a Roman bath. Yeah, yeah. Um, anyway, like so, yeah. I think this was is clearly a large city, probably mm-hmm. a comfortable city. Um, well to do yeah yeah um, all of the I mean you get the sense just like we're told about the Shire right where like the whole Shire was like the king's hunting preserve basically mm-hmm. that kind of thing um, yeah. the idea that these southern lands which were still sort of connected with Arnor but they weren't the central part of the kingdom so that there would have been a city here, but it wouldn't have been, I don't know, I want to say it wouldn't have been as functional, but that's not exactly, that's not exactly what I mean. Um, I just mean that the whole, this entire area would have been a little bit more like leisurely, you know, like far away from the, the center of city of, of, you know, the kingdom and of politics. And um, it, yeah, so I mean, mm-hmm. Oh, I got one clue here. Um, a quest popped up, and it has one sentence about uh, Karanost, and it says, 
Long ago the towers of Karanost fell, but long was their proud vigilance. Mm-hmm. That's it. Yep. That's all we get. <laughs> yeah. It's yeah. a discovery one, so I'm going to take it just in case we come across the other lost towers. All oh, right, I just got that quest here too. There you go. Yeah, yeah. So there's a, there towers. was a there's a lost eastern tower, southwestern tower, central tower, northwestern tower. So this guy had a oh, lot man. of towers. So uh, at a a quest whose only goal is to discover the lost towers of Karanost. Yeah, um, tour at Tokyo over here. Yeah, Narnia is not tempted to take very many quests, but I admit to being a little tempted by that one. Uh, yeah, um, that one seems, uh, you know, relevant to our interests. Yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Um, yeah, you can see the red down there in the stars too, on the on the floor right. of the of the gazebo over there. Right, the gazebo floor there. Yes. Yeah, you can see it's been colored red. Well, that wouldn't be hard with all the redstone out here. For sure. For sure. I don't think we've seen coloring on any of these except for the blue ribbons. Right. Okay. So my theory here, again, I think that, I think that the people of Cardolan took over this city. So this was an old Arnorian city mm -hmm. and it was taken over by the people of Cardolan when they declared independence yeah. and it was given a kind of uh like cartilage facelift right they or, added uh, some some new touches yeah uh like all those touches. <laughs> freezes right mm -hmm. perhaps even the the colored stars maybe the because we haven't seen two-tone numenorean stars like that no we That's haven't different yeah. And so maybe it was characteristic of Cardolan. They wanted to, you know, they were, wanted to keep the Numenorean stars, so they mm -hmm. uh, they kept them, um, but they yeah. they changed them. They made them more distinctive. It definitely feels like a new patriotic, uh, you know, modifying everything with your. You know, I, I can't yeah. think of it. It's it's a PR move. It's a PR move to right. come up with your symbols and then plaster them everywhere. Right. Right, and to, to differentiate them from, like, especially when you've declared independence like that, right? To do, you know, so it's like how, um, you know, the American colonists make their own flag, but they keep red, white, and blue as their colors, mm -hmm. right? So it's like, you know, you, you, you retain links to the to older tradition because it's part of your identity still. So like the Numenorean thing, right? people adapt. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But let's, uh, but, but we want to change some things. Yeah. I think I think that's what we're seeing here. So a lot of this is older, but then we'll see again. So if we look over, if I can get up over here, yeah. If you look, see the the big and that's the tower. I think we were seeing from Herna. Oh yeah, um, that's a big the one. one that's up so like due west from here, um, mm -hmm. and that looks like it was probably a newer tower. Um, yeah, at yeah. least given a, given a given a more thorough facelift, but I think probably a newer tower, so that they, the they still standing. <laughs> yeah, they built some they built some new stuff, they renovated some old stuff, but that this was mm -hmm. probably an old city. Okay, I think I think that all seems very likely. Notice the red star. This star right here is red in the same way. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. 
It's a little more faded than the ones down the hill there. But uh, yeah, but red is a very durable color. That's one yeah. of the more durable uh, earth. It's one of the more durable pigments. Right. Okay. Um, That's yeah. Have we seen? Um, Above the um, doorway. Oh, the ironwork? Yeah, the ironwork up there. Have we seen that? Huh. I don't think we've seen that. I don't recognize it. I don't think it. we've seen that. I don't see That'll any, let us know. you know, like iconography up there. It just looks decorative, but... No, I see some uh, faces in the knotwork. Some, like, hound-looking faces. Really? Yeah. Well, it could be pareidolia, Maybe. but it looks like there's something eaten. Yeah, it looks like a serpent or something. Hmm. Possibly. There's a head with some teeth. Uh, yeah. Look, look at the look at the center of it, and then go directly right or directly uh, directly right is uh, better. You can see there's a head with a long sort of snout and teeth. Oh, in, in the like, bottom right hand corner. No, at the top, at the very top near um, the. Yeah, top near the top of the arc. Huh, right. Right past these tentacle-looking lines here. Maybe. Yeah. yeah. It's got teeth. It's got a mouth. Okay. I'm I don't know what it, it is. Maybe it's my resolution. I don't know. Savage but, um, duck. Yeah. Oh, and there's well, some... Interesting. It does look a little bit... Um, it does look a little barrel whitish, as Rowan points out. Um the, uh, yeah. The swirlies certainly look a little. Um, I wonder if it's. I wonder if it's actually influenced by it. Probably influenced, and there's some. There's an interesting star freeze on the column next to it. It's a sunburst with knotwork. Wait, where? On the columns on either side of the arc. Oh, 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 oh yeah, 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 yeah. That I think we have seen. Yeah, I the think sunburst. we have. I don't know if we saw the knotwork around it like that, but. Yeah. I did miss one, so maybe you'd seen it. Well, Ooh, somebody likes ham. Oh, I see, right. That's a lot of ham. Okay. I'm still get a better look at it it's here? actually got a head, but... I mean, it's pretty, and I do agree that the swirls certainly are reminiscent of, possibly even... Like, I could be convinced that they were actually playing on the visual designs that we see in, um, in the Barrow Downs. It's a more advanced and sort of sophisticated form of art, but... Um, yeah. Yeah, that is, that is time-consuming stuff there to get that. Yeah. And then last thing, before we have to go. These doors over here. These are the same kinds of towers we've been seeing, right? Mm-hmm. With the Cartilingian up-pointing star. Mm-hmm. Again, like that, reminiscent to the old iconography, but we're switching it around. The downward-pointing star was the Numenorean star. But we'll, we'll leave those to Arthodyne, right? We're different. It's a new world yeah. here in Cardolan. Yep. We don't. The star doesn't shine down on us. We shine on the star. 
Right. We, 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 right. Or like it's, you know, it's, it's like taking the symbol, the star of Numenor and transforming it into a fundamentally different symbol. Right. From Cardinal and Regian, we shine on star. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Um, Oh, yes. Eleanor, I'm making a deliberate joke. Um, Cardinal really would not be the way you would do the adjectival form. Um, But uh, (laughs) the, Similarity with the word Carolingian um, was uh, uh, too much for my uh, modest amounts of self-control. Yeah, so, that's yeah. pure Olsenism right there. Deliberate joke on my part. I apologize. Yeah. Um, here's the interesting thing to me about this tower, the more I look at it. The four pointy bits on the top of the tower. It's very enuminous. Right? That is yep. that is the very enuminous style of tower. And Absolutely. so while they have turned but enuminous is well maybe I'm wrong. I was what I was about to say is um I was about to say enuminous is at the heart of Arthodyne. And so I would have thought they would have distanced themselves from that a bit more. Hmm. But maybe it's not fair to say that Enuminus was at the heart of Arthodyne because the capital of Arthodyne became Fornost. And even if we look at the map, going back to the map for a second, Enuminus isn't really the heart of... um, Arthodyne. Fornost is the heart of Arthodyne. Again, even if mm-hmm. we sort of looking at the big map. So you've got Fornost here. Yeah. Enuminous is on the outskirts of mm-hmm. Arthodyne. And increasingly falling into disrepair as the attention shifts to the military capital at Fornost there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So. Maybe. I still maintain that Enuminous is in reference to is a reference to Numenor, so I think mm-hmm. this points back to Numenor. Right. Yeah. No. I think yes. When Enuminous was built, it certainly was meant to point back to Numenor. But maybe, maybe what I'm saying is that there's a way in which I wouldn't have thought that they would be sort of claiming Enuminous in a sense, right? Because it is associated with their, um, uh, with their rivals now. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's not associated with their rivals because Fornost is, right? So maybe yeah. there's a sense in which Enuminous is still kind of common ground that they can appeal to. Well, maybe it's part of a larger plan to take Enuminous. <laughs> Perhaps. Or at least maintaining the hope that someday they will liberate Enuminous, right? Yeah. That's yeah. possible. But I don't know. I, I feel like Enuminous is sort of Numenor here. On, on a region, and I, well, I still feel like there's that attachment to it that this is our history, this is this is yeah. our birthright. In a sense, in a sense, I don't think I agree all the way with that, but 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 yeah, and no, I see what you mean. I see what you mean. Um, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, next time we'll run around a little bit more. I feel mm-hmm. like I've got a better grasp on in general what's happening here oh man yeah look at those up close we look behind us here towards the south oh, yeah. at these freezes up there look how much newer those look 
yeah. Shiny, no spanking question. new. No question. Those are just slapped on there. Okay, cool. All right. So we will um, we'll spend more time next time roaming about, uh, try to get the lay of the land a little bit more here in this city and uh, check out the flow and see how it worked. Um, mm-hmm. And then maybe we'll get back into the uh, occupied by orcs part. Uh, and see what differences we can find there apart from the fact that orcs are squatting in it now. All right. <laughs> Thanks very much, everybody. Uh, uh, interesting theorizing today. And we <laughs> will see you guys again next week. Good night. Elves are weird. Elves are weird. <laughs> Good night. <laughs>